You're listening to the Fantastic Movie Podcast, featuring pastors Dallas Flippin and Jamin Bradley. Welcome back to another episode of the Fantastic Movie Podcast. I'm Jamin. I'm Dallas. And we are pastors in Jackson, Michigan. And today we are getting into a unique, unique movie. I don't, it's hard to explain. If you haven't seen this movie, you're going to need to watch it before you listen to this, which should be the case with most of these episodes. But this one especially is going to feel very ridiculous. Did they just say Rekakuni? Like, what do I even do with that? <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, Everything, everywhere, all at once, uh, which is a very unique uh, movie. It's hard to even like pinpoint. You know, A twenty four is always making those like more unique, very long movies, but this one's hard to pinpoint a genre. It's every genre. <laughs> yeah, that's what it feels like. You've got a little bit of drama. You've got a little bit of sci fi, but then the comedy is comedy, but it's also kind of like. I don't know how to, it's like a different kind of comedy, you know, like, well, it's dark almost, but also not, I, it's confusing. I don't know where to pinpoint it. Yeah. It's the story of a middle-aged woman who's coming to grips with her life and the, what seems like maybe the lack of meaning or lack of, you know, life just hasn't turned out the way she expected. And then she is invited into the possibility of all universes and the threat of the destruction of all universes. And uh, how does she survive it? How does she learn how to either, does she give up? Does she learn how to thrive? Um, how, do we, how do we deal with the challenges of everyday life and the possibilities that exist throughout the universe? And I think it is absurd. Oh, no, that's an understatement. <laughs> and heartwarming. And I don't think it's easy to do both of those things. Yeah. Yeah, and it gets into a lot of interesting um, characters. Like, it, you know, the way in which we just define this movie, you'd almost think like, well, I'm not going to learn anything from that or uh, find any thought-provoking stuff in there. Yet uh, there is quite a bit of of uh, stuff to really get hung up on and think about a little bit. I think especially, oh, what's the word? Not annihilationism. Um, Nihilism? That, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that in the movie where eventually you have to face this same thing that I think Marvel's starting to face a little bit in their universe is if there are ultimately all these multiverses in the end, what really matters? And, uh, that's why you saw in like, um, uh, Dr. Strange, like you saw all your favorite characters and then you saw them kill them in one, one movie. And you're like, well, I guess they also didn't matter because they can just pull out more of these characters from any other universe. Um, so it kind of deals with that and a million other things to which our job here at the fantastic movie podcast is to kind of extract some of those, um, spiritual themes or biblical themes and, and kind of extrapolate upon it. So that's what we'll, we'll do a little bit. Why don't you take us in where, where are you going with this? So I was thinking if I could come up with any movie that, um, perhaps would take us into a biblical book of nihilism. Uh, I was thinking about the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a book that is probably usually only read maybe at the beginning of the year when people want to say, though there's a time for everything. And it is, it seems like a depressing book. It is a book that just keeps saying that there's no purpose or meaning, or there's just 
everything is just uh, hevel, uh, which was King James, I think, translated um, vanity of vanities, that kind of word. Um, a word for vapor, a word that like something doesn't last. It's ephemeral. Like if you try to grasp it, it's gone. It feels like a Hebrew curse word the way that you used it. Mm. Yeah. And, well, Hevel, uh, if you can hear a little bit of it, um, the name Abel is the same root word. Oh, yeah. Um, and so it's meant to be like the, the boy who didn't last long. Hmm. And so it's a book of like, I've tried everything. Life is awful. <laughs> Is yep. what it kind of feels like the whole the whole story. I've tried everything. Um, I try to pursue wisdom. I try to pursue um, pleasure. I've tried to pursue uh, God. But like, even for the righteous and the unrighteous, life doesn't have any sort of like it doesn't turn out the way you expect, and you can't control it. And so, like, what's the point of any of this? And the movie really is wrestling with that topic of um, the main character Evelyn, her daughter Stephanie is wrestling with does any of this matter and she's wrestling with she feels like nothing like she feels guilty she feels all sorts of pain and she um like the absurdity of the movie she throws everything on a bagel uh and it just meant to be this like uh all-encompassing eye black hole thing of like well you put everything on a bagel uh nothing matters your guilt doesn't matter anymore your pain doesn't matter anymore um, but also nothing matters so there's no joy or anything else you know, that's why her name is Joy in the uh, story. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, why do we have a biblical book that seems to be saying there's no point to anything? Everything's just going to, there's no control of it. It doesn't last. You can't hold on to it. You think, oh, I'll get something for my kids. Your kids aren't going to care about it. <laughs> <laughs> and why don't we preach on this in church more often? <laughs> yeah. You know, so. yeah, everything is just hevel. Everything is the bagel of Mordor. That's yeah. kind of the way it starts looking by the end of the movie. Yeah. yeah. And so um, I thought it was interesting that um, on one thing uh, for Ecclesiastes, it's one of five scrolls that are read for five different kind of Jewish festivals. And I don't think I could have given like the full list here. There's a few that are, are memorable to me, um, but there's... Uh, a text that's read for Passover for what Christians call Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, um, commemorating the destruction of the temple, uh, which is the ninth of Av, uh, Sukkoth, or the Festival of Booths, and Purim. Uh, and the biblical books that you read with those are Song of Songs for Passover, which is kind of an interesting one. Oh, yeah. But I don't know what it is. Well, it sounds... <laughs> I shouldn't even say this on the podcast. I have a very... Um, Big interest in the Song of Songs. <laughs> and it's not supposed to sound like that, but like I'm like, why is this book here? <laughs> what does it mean? And it's for reasons like that that it becomes even more curious. Is Passover? Let's let's read the erotic literature of the Bible. That 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 really testifies to you know us being freed from slavery. Yeah, <laughs> whatever think, the case, it's just there's there's such a uniqueness to it. Yeah. If you could pick any book of the Bible for the Passover. I don't think you would pick Song of Songs. Like I, don't, mm-hmm. I think you would go everywhere else first. Yeah, and yet that's the one. Uh, and I think there's something interesting. This everything everywhere all at once might be off-putting to some people if you are uh, very embarrassed by a book like Song of Songs. Mm-hmm. Um, there are like sex toy gags and like really weird humor in mm-hmm. the midst of this movie. Um, but I think it's like they're trying to embrace that all of humanity and all of humanity 
is complex. We've got weird facets to ourselves. And um, do we like our bodies? Do we like ourselves? Do we like our families? And so um, you just made the weirdest parts of that movie have meaning. I don't even know what to do with that. Because <laughs> in those parts, I'm like, what the heck was that in the movie for us? <laughs> Yeah, so Song of Songs, Passover, the book of uh, uh, Ruth for Feast of Weeks, the Pentecost, Lamentations for the Destruction of the Temple, and then Ecclesiastes is read for the Festival of Booths, which was um, commemorating eating and living in the wilderness for 40 years, comes right after Yom Kippur five days later. It's supposed to be joyous, you're supposed to like, it's the last harvest festival and you're supposed to eat and enjoy everything, Um, and this book that's like, well, there's no real like... You can't hold on to anything. It doesn't last. The harvests don't last. Um, but why don't we just eat, drink, and be merry for a little yeah. while? Why don't we quote that one more often? In the- <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, I've actually got a friend who um, he has told me before, like one of the, uh, he's a Christian, but one of the big themes that he's kind of struggled with in life has been this kind of nihilism type stuff. And uh, um, he mentioned that his favorite book of the Bible is Ecclesiastes. So like, I'm like, this is an interesting dynamic within the Christian faith to kind of to kind of have to sort through, and and he saw this movie as well, and it hit him in a more intriguing way. So, um, I know with some people, like this stuff actually leads to like a dark hole of just like nothing matter, you know. Whereas for me, I feel a bit more grounded in some other books of the Bible that, especially new creation type stuff and everything mattering. Uh, um, but yeah, I think there's a, a realm or a road that even Christians can end up walking down where Ecclesiastes can kind of overtake you and play maybe a unbalanced part mm-hmm. if it goes to your head too much. Well, I don't know if this makes it better or just confirms this feeling of like the dangerous road that Ecclesiastes potentially invites us into. Yep. Um, but the book of Ecclesiastes had a hard time being considered canon in scripture. Hmm. And so I think I feel like Christians we mostly talk about the New Testament canon and how that gets finalized and when it gets finalized and if finalized is the right word but like hmm. you know when you finally get to Athanasius's Easter letter I think uh, in the 300s you know you have the first list that all right here's all the New Testament books as we have them. That doesn't mean everybody agrees on that at that time but yeah. now we have it. Uh, but the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible also had its own canon kind of conversations, both in Judaism and in Christianity. And so um, the Council of Jamnia, which is kind of a bad title for it, uh, I think it was, I'm not sure the exact kind of like who first used those phrases, but the council sounds like Christian councils, and I don't think it's fair to that moment. But around 90 CE, so about 60 years after Jesus, there's people in Jamnia who are arguing about a few books of the Bible of kind of whether these things should fall in or not. And I love that they, their way of saying, is this sacred or not? Is this scriptural or not? Was they said, does it defile the hands? And if it would defile your hands, that doesn't mean it's bad. That means it's good Hmm. because the sacred, um, they have these things called gods, which is just the word for hand uh, that you would use to touch the scroll because you shouldn't touch your hand on the scroll because if it's sacred, it would, it would reveal your, dirtiness hmm. and it would it would hurt you not it's like you my, would corrupt it it would hurt you my computer laptop screen is what you're talking about yeah. So. <laughs> yeah and so they were wondering is ecclesiastes uh is it something that would defile your hands because it's sacred 
and it was kind of hotly contested, I think for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, what's safe biblical literature? Not something that tells you maybe nothing lasts. Maybe if you're good and righteous, it won't really matter. You know, like all of those messages were scary. Um, But what helps it survive is that you had a an introduction and conclusion to the book that makes it a little bit tidier, which in a way feels a lot like the book of Job to me because Job is a lot of chapters long and it's usually just protests about God and where are you. Mm-hmm. But as long as you bookend it with, you know, the narrative framework yep. and what God, you know, God has blessed him at the end of the story and all that. Yeah, okay, this a redemptive arc. Yeah. Whereas Ecclesiastes... Trying to remember how they end on that one. The last few verses says, basically, sure, the teacher taught all these things, but in the end, fear God, obey his commands. <laughs> so, a mid-redemptive arc. Yeah, yeah I uh, d- during the pandemic, when I got COVID, I read through a whole book on, because uh, um, I didn't have anything else to do except play video games and read books. Uh, it's called Finding Lost Words, The Church's Right to Lament. And it was just a bunch of essays on the Psalms. And I thought some of the beautiful points that they pulled out in it is like, hey, look, like 30 to 40% of the Psalms are laments. Like they're not happy and they're confused and they're trying to sort out all the kinds of questions that we sort out. And I feel like a lot of people today with kind of like a prosperity S type gospel is just always like, things are good. It's going well. Nothing can go wrong. And it's just, there's nothing to cry about, you know? Whereas um, the Psalms themselves, like our original hymn book, is like, it's a sacred way of saying, God saying, you have so many emotions, you need a way to handle them and express them well. Because if you don't, you know, your nihilism can go too far, your lament can go too far. There's a million different ways in which every emotion can carry you a different way. But God has specifically given us songs to sing to him to express those emotions out and uh, so he can receive those for us and in the midst of all that confusion. And that's part of what I think is beautiful about Ecclesiastes is, yeah, it's kind of dark and it's kind of nihilistic and somebody somewhere, uh, who do we usually attribute to? Is it Solomon traditionally? Yeah, traditionally Solomon. And um, and that's a little bit of somehow how the book makes it into canon, but there are a few other books that are said to be from Solomon. Yeah. Um, I think it was pretty common at that period that a lot of texts got tagged to Solomon. Um, so I don't think that's ultimately why it wins out. Cause like the odes of Solomon was really important for a lot of Jews, but it didn't make it into canon mm. um, and some other texts too. Yeah. I just gather, you know, when, when they decided that this is scripture, I think it's another way of them saying, We've all experienced these experiences as well, and yet, in the end, this is how we can cope with it and give it to God. And in the end, you know, you have that. Would you say it's just a, a be faithful to God, fear God, something like that? Mm-hmm. I mean, in the end, that's that's part of what you got to do as a Christian. Even Jesus on the cross, right, saying, and this I feel is like happening. I feel like that bracket, though, like in other places, like, well, just you know, obey God, mm-hmm. it'll be fine. And I think Ecclesiastes is saying, no, it, it, it might not be fine. Yeah. But still, if you've got to choose what to do, enjoy the moment and follow God. And that'll be enough, but you don't have control here. 
And that's a classic line too, I think, from what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were like, it's okay, God will save us. But even if he doesn't, <laughs> you're like, wait a minute, hang on, what's that? You know, they got the full faith, but clearly they don't have the full faith all at the same time. So it's the beauty in the midst of those kinds of strugglings with emotions, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I, I thought it was interesting because it's possible that that ending, well, I'd say consensus is the ending of Ecclesiastes is not original. Um, and there's a lot of arguments about which verses of the ending, like are they all from the same person or are they a couple layers of people talking at the end of the book? Um, but everything everywhere all at once has a false ending. Hmm. And they didn't have to do that false ending, but like two thirds of the way through the movie, I don't credits know. Credits start rolling, right? Yeah, the credits start rolling. So the the main character, um, so the main character dies, and like Alpha Waymond dies, um, and it just like ends, and the credits start rolling, and you're like, oh, well that's bleak. <laughs> like it just. My over. wife gave me a stare when that happened. She's like, "Is this really what happened?" I was yeah. like, "We'll have to find out, <laughs> won't we?" Yeah. So Joy like opens the mind of one of her universe's moms to all of reality. It's too much for her. Her head kind of explodes basically. And just like, well, that's the end of the movie. Yep. And then it let, they said that originally they were going to let like a full credits roll and then just oh, give wow. you Evelyn's life and all these different things in the like picture in picture. Hmm. But thankfully they just went to like, I don't know, 20 seconds or so of like, they do it for long enough that you're like, this is an interesting way to end. And then it zooms out and you're back in the movie theater with the movie version of Evelyn watching this at a premiere and her husband leans over and is like, well, that was interesting, but a little sad. Yeah. <laughs> and then the movie keeps going. Um, but it changes it from like, this could have been a very sad movie. Um, but it doesn't go fully down that path. It ends up redeeming it um, and still having something meaningful. And I feel like we often want to avoid those, like whether it's the difficulty of the message of this story or the book of Ecclesiastes, we don't want to lament. We just want the good endings. And we often don't allow others to go through those things. We don't want to allow them the space. If somebody says something that seems a little bit nihilistic or just you know, depressing or whatever it is, you're like, oh, wait, well, we don't talk like that. You know, like, <laughs> let, let's fix this, this language right now. Um, as opposed to just sitting with someone and saying, like, yeah, this is awful. I agree. Yeah. This is a classic, whatever Christian does during a funeral where they butcher the situation by trying to fill it in with Christianese, you know, like, oh, God has a plan and everything. Not the time, you know, like God had a plan to kill kill my loved ones. Is that what you were trying to say? And where our our where moments like Ecclesiastes probably like really more speak to the heart than trying to pretend that it's it's all okay when it's not. Right. Yeah, I in seminary I had a um, emergency assignment that the we had a class where we had a prompt for a funeral that we were supposed to turn in in a couple days, and they gave us the prompt. And it was like two teenagers who were drunk driving, and the driver survives, the passenger dies, but both of them go to your church. Now you have to do the funeral. Oh man! And I lamented in this funeral, mm -hmm. and I got. Um, I got a B on it, and the professor's like, it needs more Christian like hope or gospel or something like that. I was like, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, 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 I reject this feedback. Um, <laughs> as someone who's been around sad funerals, of like 
you you need to be able to grieve. There are a couple days after something awful. Mm-hmm. You don't have to immediately rush to. Yeah, it's going to be okay. And go through the five phases before you've even yeah, or get to the final phase where you've even gone through the other ones. Yeah, I think one of the the more fascinating things of this story when it comes to that, like what's the motivations like, why are you being nihilistic? Why are you being depressing? This story makes you feel like the alpha verse of these characters of, of the husband Wayman or the dad gong gong of like that. They're good characters in that joy as Jobu Tupaki is the evil villain. Who's going to destroy all of the universes. And it's actually kind of the reverse in that, the alpha universe, they're the ones who are destroying thousands of Evelyns mm-hmm. because they're afraid that she's going to turn into something like Jobu and they're, they're, they keep wanting to kill off the joys of the universe um, because they're so afraid of that darkness that they just want to destroy every potential that could get to it. Mm-hmm. But they're creating a, more, a bigger evil than allowing joy to process this and to decide what to do with this evil and chaos. Um, and so like they're going the universe looking for evil before it's there. And I feel like that's an interesting, like bigger threat mm-hmm. than who looks like the threat in the whole movie. Um, the one that you don't realize is actually more diabolical. Marvel's kind of playing that direction too right now, aren't they? Where like every universe has that one guy who's really kind of raised up to prominence. I, I haven't been tracking as much in recent times, but it seems to be a familiar trope that I guess you get into in the multiverse a little bit. Yeah, uh, with Marvel, if they're setting up a whole lot of uh, Kang being this inevitable multi-universal villain, mm-hmm. I will be disappointed if when we get to the end of it, we realize actually it was Captain America the whole time. It was the scariest, <laughs> you know, of like, don't pull out the rug from underneath us. Of like, if you're going to tease him as the big villain for a long time, at some point, just let him be the big villain. Yeah, yeah. Seems like they jumped into that pretty firmly from the get-go. But Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think even when you use the expression, I wonder if they did that intentionally of like they're trying to kill joy in every universe. Is mm-hmm. that is that? Have you read any articles where they've... I didn't hear them say it out loud, but it seems intentional. Like I heard yeah. them talk about other names. Um, uh, what was the name? There was a name that... Um, it's it's not like Gilbert. It's but it's just like a basic name mm-hmm. that they said was like a placeholder that in Asian American culture, like that it it's a word, name that kind of just also means white guy. Mm-hmm. And so like there's a part where they just run a gag on saying a name that only a certain segment of their audience knows that they're making a different joke. Okay. Um, so I know that they were very intentional. And I don't know if you caught Jamie Lee Curtis is the IRS agent. Her name's Deirdre. Mm-hmm. Did you did, did you ever see her last name? Mm-mm. On IMDb, her her name is listed as Deirdre Bobirdra. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Which it just feels like they're just having a lot of fun all the time. Yeah. Deirdre, um, Deirdre, Bobirdra, Banana, <laughs> Fano. Yeah. Yeah. So they're just having fun. Um, and I think the names are intentional. Um, and, and I also wonder, Evelyn, if Evelyn's supposed to be a little bit Eve of like mother, mm-hmm. um, mother figure.
Well, I have a quote from the directors on the indifference mm-hmm. uh, in the movie of like that something about the bagel of I think I think there's something about joy is looking throughout the universe and doesn't find any meaning because her thing the whole time is like nothing matters and like the hauntingness of that and so um, this movie was created by directors Daniel Kwan and Daniel uh, Scheinert the Daniels and um, Daniel Kwan said that he, they like to put like a motto up for their films because they know that they go in absurd places but they want like what's a simple here's something that we're wrestling with for the story mm-hmm. And so he was quoting a Stanley Kubrick, a Stanley Kubrick um, quote uh, that Stanley Kubrick was quoted as saying, the most terrifying thing about the universe is not that it's hostile, but that it is indifferent to us. But if we can find a way to come to terms with that indifference, we have as a species the opportunity to create genuine meaning. No matter how vast the darkness, we must supply our own light. And I think this movie was trying to... Um, there is no God in this universe. It is a dark, desolate universe. And in this movie, they have to create meaning for themselves. And so they have to choose to love or choose to be um, happy in the midst of all of this. Uh, And so I thought that's probably the grandest bleakness to everything is, okay, if there's no meaning, it's all on us to create meaning. Uh, and so I feel like it, it's worth pointing out like Ecclesiastes flirts with not that God doesn't exist, but that you following God won't make any difference on your life, <laughs> which is its own challenge. Um, but I feel like it it's important to like take this kind of indifference to like the cosmic proportions of what is it to be like, does any of this matter, God? Like what? Whatever I do, it doesn't seem to have any effect. Blessings or curses aren't really noticeable. Um, so what does any of this mean? Like, what, what does this matter? Um, I don't know, do, you, do you have any thought about like how you see God or the, you know, the lack of there being a God in this story? Well, I was just thinking the other day, um, just people throughout time who have left the faith have, have thought about like, what if I, what if they ever like called me out on something like, that's not the way you should live. You know, would my reaction be like, what do you care? You know, like if God is your moral compass, like it makes sense. But ultimately if you land on this like multiversal, um, nothing really matters, uh, but we can love one another type thing. Like you still always are going to come back to that question, but why, you know? And I think that's the curious thing with uh, uh, this movie is ultimately it does land on that kind of love element. And I I was curious myself, you know, because you don't see a lot of mention of anything very godlike throughout the entire movie. Like, why do they land there? Because ultimately it seems like the movie could easily go the complete nihilistic direction. That, That first time that the credits rolled, like... You're you're like wow, that's not really happening. I think, but this is the kind of movie where that could happen, where the dark humor just goes this far to just say, yeah, it doesn't really matter, does it? You know. Um, so, I, I forget what your question was, but <laughs> ultimately, the movie even airs for love, and I'm curious as to how how they get there. Would it be surprising to you that 
both the directors grew up evangelical. Uh, based on some of the content in the movie, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, they were, they both apparently did. Uh, Daniel Kwan was talking about that he was very religious and grew up evangelical and, and in his twenties at some point, uh, he realized that like his faith was gone. And so, um, there's something about the movie about like losing whatever your moral center was and losing the, the feeling of God and be like, well now what? And so I think there's something personal a little bit in the movie to him of like losing his faith. And then how do I choose to have faith again or not really faith again, but like how do I choose to have meaning, you know, if I've lost my faith. But I, I think that, um, I don't know like the fullness of that story, but I do feel like that's not uncommon in our current world of people feeling like they have questions, they have doubts, they didn't find a safe place to be able to process that, to talk through those things. Um, and then they have to leave the church environment and, um, and then they're reconstructing on their own. And, um, and that goes in a lot of different ways for different people. But I, I do wish churches, uh, have been, would have been better and would, would get better at helping people reformulate their faiths as they get older. Mm-hmm from their Sunday school, which I don't even know how long we can still use that phrase, but uh, <laughs> you know, from what would have been a Sunday school like faith of childhood into adulthood of like, take yep. this take ownership of your faith and understand things in, in a fresh way. And so I think in this movie and perhaps in that director's experience, it was like, none of this matters now. I don't know if I can go forward. How do I choose to have any meaning anymore? That reminds me that there was a pastor in Jackson who recently put out an interesting tweet where it was like, um, you see, uh, uh, what was the word we just used when people are trying to work through their faith? Deconstructing. Yeah, reconstruct, deconstruct, uh, where Jesus does that all the time. He's like, you've heard it said, but I tell you. I was like, oh, snap. (laughs) That's kind (laughs) of deconstruction in the Bible. To to some extent, Jesus keeps taking things and and rephrasing it and re reframing it for people. So um, maybe people wouldn't do that so much if the church was more open to a lot of these conversations in the first place, and then just shove a bunch of Christianese to try to cover it up. Uh, and that's, uh, we run we run something at our church called Nerd Church, and one of the things that I always loved about um, our attempts to reach nerds is they like to think outside of the box. And part of the reason that they always don't want to talk about Christianity is because Christians don't like to think outside of the box a lot of times or ask those weird questions. So like when we launched it, it was like, let's talk about aliens. You guys wonder if they're real nerds do because we like sci-fi. So let's just hop right into that discussion. Whereas I've seen in the evangelical church before, I remember I was just hearing some Christians talking behind me and they were looking up at the sky and, and one of them was like, so what do you think? Aliens are real? And the other person was just like, no. I was like, oh, that's such a, you know, like that would shut a nerd down and be like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, so like being able to have those conversations, to sit in the difficulty, to say something isn't right. Why do I think it's not right? How can I understand God within the boundaries of this confusion? I mean, the Bible does that constantly, especially a lot of the wisdom literature where it's just like consistently like Job is the example of someone who the Bible said God would bless and take care of and nothing would go wrong. He's also the example 
of everything going wrong, you know? And like when the Bible itself is toying with its own teaching, I feel like that should be giving us a whole lot more reason to say Christianese is not going to solve our issues if even the Bible recognizes that Christianese is not going to solve its own issues. So, Yeah, I think the deconstructing thing that, uh, like there's the difference between knowing something in your head and like feeling it in your heart, your spirit, mm-hmm. and like the processes of that journey for your head and your your heart they have different speeds. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about like, um, this book reminds me, like you're talking about, you know, people think inside these boxes, you know, in this movie, the universe is so expansive and so many possibilities. But I always think about that in re- reference to God of like, we have really limited boxes for God because we want it to make sense. But if you actually think God is all powerful and these kinds of things, you're like, it gets kind of so expansive about what God means. And so like we know, well, God's not really the God just sitting in the sky, the sky God. (laughs) But even though you know that, like it's hard to like fully get out of that framework. And so how is God a part of the processes on the earth? What is, how is God a part of all these other trillions of stars and other kinds of planets and time that, doesn't make any sense. And so I think about like in this movie, um, it has a few things about cultures being different. Uh, I do like the subtleties that um, they talk in Cantonese to the grandpa and Mandarin, like the spouses talk in Mandarin. Hmm. The daughter doesn't understand the Mandarin that well, so they talk in English to her. Um, And so there's kind of boundaries. And then obviously... um, the daughter Joy has a girlfriend and they're trying to understand these um, sexuality and relationships. And in the movie, like it stops. They're like, wait a minute, you have all of the universe and you're like confused about your daughter's sexuality now. Like, like, like we have worlds with hot dog fingers and we've got rock. <laughs> don't talk about the hot dog fingers. <laughs> I don't know how to deal with the hot dog fingers. We've got uh, people playing the piano on their feet and uh, we've got a uh, 2001 space odyssey opener of the monkeys with the, oh, yeah. <laughs> with the, with the hot dog fingers. Um, and in the midst of that, you're like, oh, maybe you're the reason why my daughter likes girls. And she's like, really? That's where we're stopping right now? Um, but I think about like, some people get really adam- adamant about God is a male. And you're like, what does that even mean? Hmm. Like, I know that you have the metaphors of the father and son spirit. But are you saying God has like certain genitalia or certain chromosomes or Hmm. is there certain personality traits that are only masculine when the universe is so wide of like what possibly like you're talking about aliens of like what kind of organisms that could exist. And Hmm. and like we have such a small level of existence in comparison to all that's possible that it's weird that we try to push all those boxes on God. But if it's also true that God is beyond all those boxes, how on earth do we relate to God? <laughs> so like, yeah. how do you talk to someone on that scale? And so I think you still are, are left with the bagel of like, if God is the bagel that, is, <laughs> that has everything, like, how on earth do I relate to you? How do you not just absorb me? Like, can I still be myself? Can I, like, I, I don't know. Like, it's interesting that even if God is too big for our categories, it still creates other kinds of awe and other kinds of existential crises. Mm-hmm. Um.
not that life's meaningless necessarily, but well, who am I in the midst of this and who are you and how do I understand God? this subject isn't the holy spirit and like hebrew isn't that like a feminine word so like yeah so the the word spirit in hebrew is uh is female um or or i should say feminine and i think in the early church development so in syriac speaking kind of which is a hebrew kind of cousin language uh, those churches they did have a feminine um spirit uh noun in the greek world like our new testament the spirit is a neutered noun so it's an it hmm. and then in the latin west it's a masculine noun hmm. and so you get a very masculine image in the latin west and so our language does affect and shape the way that we then conceptualize but we have hebrew bible texts of god you know breastfeeding or god yeah. you know having you in his womb and like yeah. so but Some, we just don't you know, we don't emphasize those texts. Yeah. I think some scholars have even drawn some lines between Jesus and Proverbs, like Lady Wisdom, mm-hmm. where Jesus seems to be like hearkening back to, yeah, that's me, you know, which I know wisdom is a feminine Hebrew word. Therefore, like when they're making wisdom to be a person, it just ends up taking on the feminine form. But, you know, Jesus in the New Testament, likening back to something, um, the female they, again you just get like when you get to deity and gender and things like that you get into um situations where it's more or less humans trying to comprehend on some kind of human scale because mm-hmm. we know that's not what image is really talking about when people are always like oh yeah we're making god's image therefore he's got 10 fingers 10 toes and, <laughs> and it's like no that's a very different that hebrew salem is really a lot of who we are made in in the image of God and living, breathing mirrors of who he is to the rest of creation. So um, when when you get into the beginning of the Bible and you've already got them asking the question, why are we here and here's the answer, um, you see that it starts off without a nihilistic view. Um, but people throughout the Bible, knowing what their purpose is, still run into those nihilistic moments where it's like, I know why I'm here doesn't really seem to be doing what it's supposed to be doing. And how do I deal with that when it feels like everything that you've equated to is but vapor or dust or would you, would you say Hevel Mm -hmm. Hevel? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm reminded of, you know, we kind of like to make jokes of in the church world, people fighting over carpet colors and like things that don't matter. 
And I remember I had somebody that um, they were wrestling with like understanding their identity and, and ways that wasn't safe to necessarily process um, in that church environment. But like they they were a musician, they played for the church, played really beautifully, played something. Um, and I knew like with what they were wrestling with, like it wasn't easy for them to offer that gift to the community. And then afterwards, um, the pastor said something to me of like, well, I wish he had, hadn't worn those holy jeans. <laughs> You're like, why on earth do the jeans matter? Yeah. <laughs> the, there's no world in which these jeans matter. Mm-hmm. Like you think about the cosmic absurdity of all that's possible. And do you think God is sitting there like, I think this, these clothes aren't quite acceptable. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because we do have biblical texts about how we dress and, and all of these things. But I do think like there's also prophetic streams of like, but really? <laughs> yeah. Like these are good guides and they're good rules, but you know what? Actually, everything's clean. Mm-hmm. You know, Peter, no, God, I, I, I know better than I'm not going to fall for this. I, I'm not going to eat that. Um, but I do think like there's something to like these, these rules, these categories seem really important to us from our vantage point. But if you ever were to get to God's like giant vantage point, you'd be like, what's going yeah. on? Now that's why the new Testament's so messy is just because once they start bringing the Gentiles and they have to face the cultural multiverse that already existed in their time, you know, and mm-hmm. they're trying to figure out how do we get everybody to follow our 613 plus rules if they're all going to become Yahweh followers and uh, they're all eventually they come down to what? Like four? <laughs> and it's not even the Ten Commandments no. that they come up with. It's just like, hey, don't sleep around, don't eat uh, meat sacrificed to idols or something that still has the blood in it. Care for the widows and orphans might yeah. have been the, the third one. Yeah. Yeah. They just, they kind of land on like when they try to think of the multiverse of bringing in all the different cultures, because they know that that was prophesied, that God was trying to reach all the different nations, not not make a homogenous, gener- uh, homogenous, what's the word I'm looking for, culture, but mm-hmm. but reach all the different cultures so that they stream into Jerusalem. Um, that puts a lot of trust in, in the hands of the people being reached, where I think essentially, I feel like, the Bible's perspective is ultimately like introduce them to King Jesus, <laughs> let King Jesus start getting in their life to help them try to sort out where to go from there. Uh, give them some of the basics, let them know, of course, how they should live. Uh, Greg Boyd shared a a good example of I think how this works, where there was this uh, this village that got saved, and they had a custom of like female genitalia mutilation. And that's not gospel, you know, mutilation. I mean, I know we have the male circumcision but uh, in the Bible, but uh, gospel-wise, like we're not trying to hurt people and deform them or whatnot. And what they did, these missionaries, they knew they weren't going to give up that custom, so they just kind of like, well, we're going to make it safe at least. So they brought in some like medical supplies until... Eventually, these people said, why are we doing this? Like, this isn't what Jesus would do type thing. And so they then, like, kind of backed up and said, we're, we're not going to do this anymore. And I wonder if that's, like, an image sometimes of of the cultural multiverse of, like, bring Jesus into it, let him convict them, and ultimately lead all of our different cultures to their most Jesus-centric expression 
which means tossing out some of the bad stuff, keeping in some of the good stuff, but not becoming homogenous, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that makes me think about the finale of this film, which is um, they take like the Matrix scene of like the bullets are coming at you. Mm-hmm. And then uh, instead of them like falling to the floor like the Matrix, um, Michelle Yao, like the main character, Evelyn, takes it and it turns into the googly eyes. Oh, yeah. Which her husband had been putting googly eyes on things throughout the movie. Uh, and actually, they worked their way backwards. That When they were writing this finale, that was the idea was to transform the bullets into the googly eyes. And then they made it fit into the rest of the story. But it was the idea of like putting joy into everyday objects and everyday things. And so transforming weapons into joy uh, and transforming these things that are meant to hurt and feeling like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make something positive out of this. So she turns into the googly eye and then she puts it on herself, which I thought was really cool. Like the movie began with her being so frustrated by her husband's optimism and his, his joy. And like, she's always taking all these googly eyes off of the washing machines and all these things. But the fact that she like puts it on herself, knowing all the, all of the universes, knowing all of the pain, knowing all of the, the things that she didn't do and get to do in life, but saying, no, like I'm going to be joyful and takes his bullets to become the googly eyes. But then she goes in this interesting, like intricate fight scene in which she's not fighting. She's giving people what they most desire in life. And so she's giving somebody the smell of their their ex or their deceased wife that had passed. She sprays their the perfume in this guy's face. And all these different random little things. Um, but it kind of like culminates to like she's fighting joy for the first like actual time where it looks like they're about to actually fight and joy's getting into her like fighting motion or whatever and then michelle yao like does this like open armed like looks like i'm ready for a hug Mm -hmm. pose didn't it also look like karate kid kid or something yeah Yeah, so it's that like karate look but it's also open arms of i'm gonna hug you Mm -hmm. uh which is her getting to that spot of like the whole movie they're told that you're supposed to fight and and destroy jobu as opposed to I'm going to embrace these people. I'm going to see, I'm going to see them, which I think the googly eye is also saying mm-hmm. like, I can actually see your existence. Um, I notice you, uh, I see what you desire, what you long for. And so, um, I thought it was interesting that like the resolution of this was not, you know, the light beam, uh, you know, we got to destroy the monsters, but it became, do I see the people around me? How do I help them? Um, know that we care about them and so i feel like the arms opened up also evokes the jesus image Mm -hmm. arms up and on the cross Um, and so it's like how do you defeat the enemy not with weapons but with love and hopefulness and this world that looks despairing yeah and i think ultimately the that jesus image of you know, hands out trying to welcome us in and forgiving us because we don't know what we're doing and all that. Like, that's a pretty radical amount of grace. And I think you can get caught up in um, the law and you can kind of decide that this is culture and this is how it's supposed to be. Or um, it can be found in Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law, right? Who then is able to kind of judge from culture to culture or place to place or person to person to try to help bring us all into that fullness of 
of what is the best version of Jamin in all the multiverse, <laughs> right? Like, and because that that's my heart posture as well, or what I want my heart posture to be at least is how can I be chiseled into the most pre-resurrected Jamin that there is, so that when the resurrection comes, there's there's less to adapt to or switch to because I um kneeled all of my heart, mind, strength to him beforehand, you know. So I think that's kind of a interesting analogy you can pull out of multiverse thinking by the end of this, yeah. Well if you think about Jesus and like the Philippians kenosis him of like I'm going to uh, humble myself, mm. take on human form, go through all this pain. Uh, there's there's that going on in the story too of like if all things are possible these characters like Evelyn and Joy become like gods in the story. Yep, they can transform things, reshape things. Mm-hmm. They can jump universes. All of this, they can go everywhere and all do everything <laughs> all at once. Yeah, um, but to not use that godlike power to create weapons or to force conformity but to understand somebody uh, is just really beautiful. Yep. And I feel like um, that solidarity of Jesus in the midst of pain, um, not not just like a, a masochistic of like, we just need the pain to happen, but like mm-hmm. I'm choosing to accept being a part of you and um, that solidarity. Yeah, there was even, you mentioned the kenosis passage, the Jesus emptying himself. There was one scholar I read, it was when I had COVID. (laughs) I read all the books that we're talking about today, (laughs) the one time I had COVID. Um, But uh, when he he dove into that passage, that entire book, he felt like Paul kept using very intimate romantic language in the way that he related to the church, in the way that he related to Jesus. and that uh, some of the way in which the kenosis could be translated, though I usually lean toward the side of like emptying himself of things so that he could be fully human, things that were godlike, that were incompatible. That's the traditional way in which I've leaned. Um, Paul possibly is using the language in like uh, Jesus melted away for us because. In Greek times, if the gods saw a human that they wanted, they just took it, right? Uh, You have Zeus and how many human-type lovers, things like that. But the way in which Jesus pursues his bride, pursues the church, is kind of just like melts away on our behalf, trying to get our attention to um, show us through his great love uh, to, to come to him, and then the relationship moves forward from there. And so ultimately, I think... You have Jesus even kind of landing on this side of like, err on the side of love, and we'll figure out the rest as we, we go along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I really appreciate, um, I appreciate that this story focused so much on family and like uh, intimate kind of relationships. Because when we talk about these big giant things, whether it's a giant God or mm-hmm. all reality and all universes, what on earth like is my place in that? And I feel like going into this family unit of what's my place in my everyday life is really like useful and applicable and relatable. And so who do I hope God turns me into? How do I want God to shape me? All of these things. But, like 
they're most evident in the way that I interact with everyday people around me. And something I thought that was really powerful in this story was it was grounded in this family that didn't know how to communicate. Uh, the, the daughter wants to communicate about their girlfriend to the grandpa, doesn't know the language. The husband doesn't really want a divorce, but wants to try to say that he wants a divorce so that the wife will understand that he's serious. Which another pastor pointed out to me is like um, psychological manipulation. And yeah. that that's seen in the movie as kind of like a tender moment. And that's what you feel when you see it. But like from a from a psychological abuse kind of point of view, when people do that, it's like a big no-no. Yeah. <laughs> so. And he hadn't gone through with it yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the mother doesn't quite know how to talk to any of these people either. And um, I feel like it's most pointed for you whenever her daughter gets in, is about to get in her car and she comes out and she tells her, uh, Joy, you are getting fat. Yep. And I think that's the moment you're supposed to realize, like, oh, their relationship's not great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that part startles me in the movie because that's, that's at the end, right? It's um, Or the beginning and the end, maybe? Yeah, so it's they have the laundromat scene and all of that. It's before she... I can't remember if it happens before they go to the IRS or if it's... But it, it's the first half of the movie. Yeah. Um, but I, I had a... Uh, a classmate in seminary from Hong Kong who said something very similar to me really? randomly of like, I was like after holidays or something, I was like, I can't remember the exact wording, but something like, why are you getting fat? <laughs> something like that. Or you're like, Oh, um, well, why are you getting mean? You <laughs> jerk. <laughs> and so I think there's this like cultural honesty slash, I don't know, uh, harshness that's just trying to be honest or something like that that mm. that the movie's trying to play with of like I think a lot of audiences hear this as just like you're being mean and then there were a lot of some Asian American audiences who were like oh this is like I've heard this yep. <laughs> you know like that doesn't necessarily make me feel good about it but mm. like I know this thing but I think it's weird that we could be honest in hurtful ways sometimes but not be honest in loving ways mm. But it took Evelyn and Joy having like all superpowers for them to actually have an honest conversation. Yeah. So it's like they had to go through everything to finally just open up and be real together. And it's like, can't we just figure out how to talk mm-hmm. so that we don't need to like have our universes come crashing down to finally get to that moment? Um, but I do think it was really beautiful that the whole movie ends up actually just being that the daughter wants her mom to know what she's going through. So she's been searching every universe for her mother in a way that can see her and see this experience. And she says, I hope that you had, I hope you would see this and have a different conclusion. She's like, it looks like this is all pointless and nothing matters. And I was really hoping that you'd see this differently. But the mom actually sees it the same and they find comfort in the fact that they understand each other better. Mm-hmm. But then the discomfort comes back when the mom's like, even still, I'm going to fight for you. And I think there's something to, oftentimes we are better at seeing what other people around us need than we are at our own needs. Where she's like, I I know that you matter because I know that you matter to me. So I'm going to hold on as much as I can. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I love that the story becomes this um, family communication and 
uh, what links you can go to to either understand yourself and all of your other possibilities, but also understand the people in your life. Yep. And despite all the chaos that they cause throughout the entire movie, somehow they get their taxes done at the end. That's maybe the most unbelievable part of everything without going to jail or... (laughs) If it's the category of the absurd. Yeah, yeah. Wait, in all possible universes, you don't tell me what I owe you? You make me calculate what I owe you, but then you'll tell me if I'm wrong. No. Why can't why can't we have a different universe? <laughs> That's the most messed up universe of all, really, <laughs> when you think about it. Yeah. I just did my taxes today, so I'm in I'm in that mode right now, ready to go. <laughs> and and then the nothing really matters. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> well, hey, this has been another episode of the Fantastic Movie Podcast. Everything, everywhere, all at once. I didn't say that backwards, right? Everywhere, everything. All at once, everything, everywhere. It depends on what multiverse you're in. It has a different title in each. Now, before we wrap up, we are both pastors, and there's always that question with R-rated movies like this one. Would you recommend this to people? Dallas, your take? It is a select audience (laughs) that I would recommend it to. I'd say if you are not uh, weirded out by the idea that it's going to be absurd to get to warm, heartfelt places, uh, and I think I mentioned earlier, there are uh, hot dog fingers and uh, sex toys and all sorts of weird things in this, but it is grounded in a lot of like heartfelt love and 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 hopefulness in the end. Uh, so, I would recommend it to select audiences. Uh, we are pastors who come to these movies trying to pull out and the spiritual themes to chat about them. Not so much your um, moral guide as to if you should watch the movie or and, not. And I also don't necessarily recommend reading song of songs to your kids either oh, so fair especially <laughs> if they can read between the lines yeah well with that being said we will catch you guys next time on the fantastic movie podcast <laughs>